So primarily, I think, the situation that the left is in right now is, is marked by the failure uh, of Leninism to successfully mount uh, any real um, build any real base in the working class in any of the advanced capitalist countries or to really offer a, a political alternative. Um, the kind of dual power insurrectionary model has not been able to um, provide a, an alternative to capitalism over the, over the past 100 years in advanced capitalist countries. Um, and at the same time, the conjuncture is also marked by the decline of social democracy. Um, so even ironically enough, as you see in the US, a kind of rebirth of social democratic thinking the conjuncture nevertheless remains defined all across the advanced capitalist world with the, de the collapse and decline of the social democratic parties. And that, of course, um, was underway long ago, but, but was especially became noticeable um, over the 1970s and 1980s with the turn to the third way, when social democratic parties gave up even the kind of pretense of class conflict and shifted to um, advocating for inclusion of marginalized communities within the structures of corporate capitalism. So the Social Democratic parties at one time were able to claim with some degree of plausibility that they were incrementally building towards something better. Um, that's no longer a credible claim since the third way has collapsed. So you see in the US now this rebirth of social democracy around Bernie Sanders and the kind of left in the, DS, uh, the Democratic Party um, happening at this weird moment where social democracy isn't really a viable option and even people who are um, espousing social democratic politics have called it socialism. And I think that we need to think through uh, quite concretely what we mean by socialism. So in this disorienting moment, oh, and at the same time, you know, in the U.S. especially, you see, you know, the, the, the very dramatic, currently, the collapse of the kind of Trotskyist alternative um, in the form of the ISO, which, you know, no longer exists. Um, so, you know, in this moment of confusion, the left has been people on the left who are trying to carve out an alternative path uh, while avoiding either of these two failed alternatives have been clutching for some kind of great thinker to, to identify with that can kind of guarantee their politics, guarantee the radicalism of their politics, and um, offer some rootedness in the traditions of radical socialist thought and, and especially Marxism. And I think you know, we've seen, for example, a rebirth of people identifying with Kotsky, which to me is actually very strange. I mean, like, I, I don't think that's a very smart idea for people who are trying to carve out that political space. You know, it is trying to meet the kind of the challenge of the moment in the, in, in the way that I just mentioned, where you have on the one hand social democracy, on the other hand Leninism. Kotsky appears to offer a non-Leninist, non-social democratic alternative, but I think um, the limits of that are, are, are quite a lot, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to hitch the wagon to that theoretical um, person, that theorist. But um, there is a general disorientation. Some people have latched on to Poulonsis as, as offering an alternative. In some ways he does, but also there, there are very severe limits with him as well. So we uh, are going to discuss a book called Roads to Freedom, which was written by Bertrand Russell. And this is not, this is not for, uh, supposed to be us putting forward yet another example of a, of a great thinker that people can latch onto in order to identify their, their, their politics in a particular tradition, but because the book actually offers a helpful framework for thinking through some of the strategic issues that the left faces as it tries to navigate this uncertain moment. Um, so we don't want to create the impression, in other words, that we, we, we should all become Russellians. Um, we want to we reaffirm the, the very important point that we are in a moment of experimentation in which we don't have necessarily a lot of models from the past that we can rely on. I continue to believe that the party form is essential to socialism and that you know, we're going to talk more about that. 
Uh, so, uh, but other than those very vague guidelines, we don't have a lot of, of models that we can hatch, latch onto, and even the form of the party, what the party's going to look like, all those things are very much open-ended, especially when you look at the U.S. context in relation to the Democratic Party and how to build in, in and out of that um, formation. Yeah, so we're going to do this little like back and forth thing, cause, yeah. I don't know, that's how we divvied it up, uh, but I guess before I get into some of the way that Russell frames some of these questions in the book and what I, what we think is kind of a helpful way for us to be thinking through some of these things. I just want to add one thing about, in, in the Canadian case, the situation that we find ourselves is, in, is even more stark, I think, than you all here in the United States. We haven't seen anything like this Sanders, DSA, social democratic revival, and if anything, the NDP in Canada, the New Democratic Party, the traditional social democratic party in the country, has just moving further and further to the center, to the right, uh, recently striking the word socialism from its constitution. Uh, and, you know, in our immediate case in the last provincial election in Ontario, the, the NDP ran to the right of the Liberal Party. Uh, and so we haven't seen any of this kind of new interest and in, in upsurge in the same kind of way. So maybe we, these are some things we can talk about more. but. Uh, so, you know, the main question uh, that Russell is looking at, he writes this book in 1918 uh, while in prison for resisting World War I. Uh, and as the title of the book implies, uh, with Roads to Freedom, he's trying to take an assessment of the broadly defined socialist left and determine what are the different tendencies, what are their aims and goals, what are the potential roads uh, to freedom. And so basically he identifies three main tendencies that uh, we're all probably familiar with, right? Revolutionary Marxism on the one hand with a kind of emphasis on revolution as a insurrectionary moment where the forces of the working class topple uh, the capitalist state and bourgeois society. Syndicalism, uh, right? The uh, revolutionary trade union movement uh, which aims towards this revolution as some sort of unlimited general strike, and then parliamentary socialism, which conceives of its uh, you know, strategy for victory being winning some kind of parliamentary majority and being able to impose this program through the state. And so these three different tendencies essentially have uh, two kinds of strategic orientations. Democratic centralism of some kind in the, in the uh, tendency of revolutionary Marxism, but also in parliamentary socialism where we see that the broader workers' movements are uh, subordinated to the party in a fairly top-down uh, way. Whereas for the trade union movement, for revolutionary syndicalism, the party and the trade union are fused together in one thing, um, and the political organization is then subservient to the trade union movement. And Russell says, basically, these are, these are all flawed tendencies uh, for various reasons. None of these are adequate in order to actually meet the task at hand, which is not only <laughs> developing a movement capable of winning uh, freedom, but also in creating a kind of just society if it was able to win. Yeah. And so, um, you know, just very briefly, some of these limits that he discusses 
uh, are this, the subordination of the movement to the party, right? The idea that uh, the trade unions have to be in lockstep uh, with the party or that things like other aspects of the workers' movement um, need to just follow a strict line. And, you know, he also points out the problem of having, uh, in the syndicalist case, uh, a political movement dominated by trade unions, which remain even if they aspire to be one big union uh, or revolutionary unions, they still represent workers with different sectional interests. And so the problem of trying to say, uh, if workers' power comes from their ability to basically shut down the economy, uh, how do we create a society where coal miners have far more say than the flower arrangers or drape installers or whatever. So, I don't know, do you want to? Sure. Um, yeah, so, so the, if the puzzle is one of, of overcoming, on the one hand, democratic centralism, which argues that the trade unions and the social movement should be subordinated to a revolutionary vanguard party, Leninist model. On the other hand, trade union supremacy, which argues that the trade unions can just on their own lead the revolution or lead a political struggle without necessarily a political directorate in the form of a party that's separate from the trade union movement. You know, obviously in the case of the democratic centralists, they say, well, the trade unions can never be revolutionary because they have trade union consciousness and they need the party to make them revolutionary, to make them socialists. Whereas the, the syndicalist approach, the trade union supremacy kind of model, argues that the trade unions can on their own become revolutionary agencies and political forces without the need for a party or any kind of like political force to enter from outside the trade union movement and make it political. So if that's the goal is to get beyond those two um, binary opposites while also noting the parliamentary centralism of social democratic parties whereby uh, all social movement forces, all trade union struggles are to be subordinated to parliamentary tactics rather than, rather than movement building and developing working class capacities. What we have tried to think through, building off of what Russell talks about in the book, is what we've called the need for a constructive antagonism between these different dimensions of struggle in which neither of the dimensions should, should completely subordinate itself to the strategic directions or, or hegemonic project as articulated by any of those particular uh, forces. So the trade unions have, will, have, will have to be a part of the movement naturally, as will a political party, as will wider social movements. They're, never, they're not going to necessarily agree. There's going to be a messy process where, you know, sometimes there's very significant, significant clashes between them. And the, the moving beyond the idea that you can have a vanguard party that perfectly represents the working class or whatever, means that you're going to have to find a creative way of building through this antagonism to make these forces work together. So if we're going to say, if we're going to reject the dual power model and just say we have to have, which says that we have to have just insurrection against the capitalist state from outside, and agree that we want to enter the state and transform the state and you know, use electoral struggle to complement struggle outside of, the range of, outside of the realm of parliament. The question then becomes, how can these forces work together? And I think that's the key puzzle that the left actually faces. I think the easy solution that's offered by social democracy and the easy solution that's offered by Leninism, which says, well, we can just be perfectly representative of the working class and our vanguard party's apprehension of the objective interests of, of, of uh, the proletarian capitalism, we, we have to accept that the reality is much more complex and that no one organization can actually represent the working class. Just as much as we need the trade unions, we need a political party or parties, and we need uh, social movements as well to, to be able to um, advocate for dimensions of struggle that are not accounted for by the other uh, agencies, which as we know, the feminist movement, the black rights movement, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's obviously been the case throughout time. Um, so the struggle is one fundamentally over representation. 
It's over the nature of representation. Who does the representing and how is that, how is that representational force articulated to other components of the struggle? Um, and we've termed this a constructive antagonism um, between these different dimensions. I think I covered that, but then the last thing is... is yeah, so kind of uh, taking this from a broader conception that we're trying to develop and then think about how it looks in the everyday work of our political organization is basically trying to have not only an organization with internal democracy and a democratic structure, but also a kind of democratic ethos about what a working class movement should look like and, and how components of that movement should interact with each other, which is to try to say on the one hand, we don't mean to be naive and say that there aren't real principal differences and conflict that will occur and play out, but also to say that we really, like Steve said, need to get away from these uh, kind of rigid understandings of representation, which say that there can be such a thing as a single authentic representative organization of the working class. Um, and with our last few minutes, I think we've got a couple, yeah? Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the structure of the Socialist Project, some of the things that we're working on, uh, and we're interested in hearing what people have to say in the discussion. So, Socialist Project small, uh, we're about 50 people in Toronto. We are a cadre organization, which means that we conceive of our members as people who want to uh, not only do activist work, but develop their own uh, theoretical understandings of the world and try to uh, educate other people in that. We uh, have a formal membership structure and dues-based uh, membership system. And we operate through a number of committees. We have a publications uh, committee, which does various uh, external education work, a labor committee, which tries to network labor activists uh, together in different trade unions, uh, a culture committee, which is interested in socialist cultural activities, uh, and then what we call a kind of a newly developing thing, a campaign committee, which at this point is basically a community organizing project. Uh, for the last nine months, we've been working on a campaign to organize bus riders to improve service on uh, one of the worst bus lines in the city. Uh, and so kind of in doing this work, we've been trying to figure out what this kind of democratic ethos looks like by having uh, these committee structures, which are led by uh, Socialist Project members, but open it's more broadly to people than that. And to figure out exactly how can we work with people uh, in ways which is productive and allows certain work to get done, like a campaign to make a, a bus line better, uh, but also allows people to be brought into uh, an organization which is interested in much broader uh, political questions than just something like good services on a bus line. Yeah, so I think the, the idea is to try to, is to, try to um, create a space whereby this constructive antagonism can play itself out. So we have, so we have, so people become interested in the campaign work, They're, they are brought into a political organization which is connected to a bigger political organization, which is the, the linked together by the GMMs, the, the general membership meetings which happen once a month. And that's connected to our labor committee which has like labor activists in it with, you know, some of whom are members and some of whom are not members. And so the idea is to try to like create space with these different committees to be articulated together through a general members meeting in which this constructive antagonism, antagonism can begin to play itself out and a political perspective can be developed collectively in the process of engaging in all of these different nodes of work. So I guess we're probably about out of time. We can leave it there, yeah. Yes. Okay.
Oh, that was quick. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking that uh, there's a tendency at HM for panels to be quite random, you know, uh, just cobbled together. And I'm really happy that this isn't the case at all here, yeah, because I wanted to raise the flag uh, for Leninism. I wanted to say almost the exact opposite of what you guys said. And I think that's the foundation we're going to have a great uh, debate. I'm going to start out talking about the German Revolution. We celebrated the uh, centenary uh, just a few months ago. I've studied that a lot, and I'm going to uh, try to generalize some of the conclusions from that um, at the end of my talk. I wanted to start out here with a picture that I meant to print out, but yeah, it was, Staples was closed. And Anyway, uh, you can see it here. This is my favorite picture of the German Revolution. And on it, you see uh, these right-wing paramilitary forces, kind of the proto-Nazis, the Freikorps. Right, exactly. They've got a machine gun in place. They are shooting at a workers' demonstration. And behind them, on that column, is posters put up by the government of the Social Democratic Party saying, socialism is here. Uh, they're talking about the socialization of the coal mines. And yeah, the bottom says, this is socialism. And that picture, this juxtaposition, really, uh, yeah, one picture to explain the whole policy of the Social Democratic Party during the German Revolution, which is on the one hand massacring workers, tens of thousands of workers, and on the other hand promising workers socialism. Um, yeah, and the person who was the head of this uh, socialization commission, the, the person in charge of, of maintaining this government uh, farce uh, that, that socialism was under was being created, was Karl Kautsky. It's a figure that had virtually disappeared, you know, what, about 80 years uh, since his death. Interesting, it's coming back. I haven't seen his name come up in Germany, only like in translations from the, from the US. It's, it's, it's very much a North American phenomenon, this resurgence of Kautskyism. But I think it's important to, to look at his role uh, from, a, from the perspective of the experience in Germany. I don't know, because like the only experimental criteria for any revolutionary theory is, at the end of the day, is a revolution. So like you can't assess uh, Kautsky's theory without looking at, at how it played out in practice. Um, yeah, in the German Revolution, Kautsky ended up being kind of a fifth wheel to the social democratic government, which saved capitalism and, yeah, massacred tens of thousands of workers. And the question is, like, what are the strategic decisions that led Kautsky to this position? And I think we should look back to 1910, to a debate that took place within the social democracy on the question of strategy. Uh, Karl Kautsky, like all uh, Marxists uh, throughout history, uh, based himself a lot on military theory and um, uh, took some categories from the military theoretician Hans Delbruck and uh, Kautsky proposed differentiating between two different strategies for two different situations, one a strategy of attrition and the other a strategy of overthrow. Yeah, this was a debate that took place in 1910 in the social democracy in the context was that there was this gigantic and largely spontaneous movement in the state of Prussia, in the largest German state, demanding equal voting rights. Um, yeah, hundreds of thousands of workers were going to demonstrations, and it was in that context that Rosa Luxemburg, from the left of the social democracy, uh, argued that the party agitate for a general strike as kind of the, the, as, as the way to move this movement forward and to actually win uh, voting rights from the Prussian state. Kautsky was opposed to this idea. Kautsky, in fact, uh, even prevented Luxembourg from, from advocating this idea in the party's publications. Kautsky's uh, counterproposal was to focus on the, on the next elections, which were uh, less than two years away. And um, Luxembourg, it's, I think it's important to emphasize, was not against electoral politics, against electoral work. And even her first job uh, in arriving in Germany had been as an election campaigner uh, amongst the Polish-seeking workers in uh, Silesia. 
But she felt that even, even the danger that the SPD, if uh, setting on a course of developing these mass mobilizations, even the danger that the, that the party could get prohibited again, should not lead it to a situation where it would hold back the class struggle. Um, and Luxembourg, in this context, accused Kautsky of nothing but parliamentarianism. Yeah, so, so a lot of people have been discussing about uh, Kautsky's theories, and, and uh, I think um, Kautsky did not reject the idea of revolutionary struggle. He uh, saw that as an inevitable phase in the historical development that a socialist party would go into battle against the state and beat uh, the state. But Kautsky argued that um, the party in 1910, that they were, not in a, uh, that they were in a non-revolutionary situation, and his conclusion was that a non-revolutionary situation demanded a strategy of attrition, a strategy of slowly building up forces and waiting for a, a change in the situation. And, and that also meant for him that, that a revolutionary situation, only a revolutionary situation, would then demand switching to a strategy of overthrow. That's how he interpreted you know, this, this dichotomy. Um, and he believed that a, that a socialist party would first need a majority in parliament in order to have like a, like a political mandate to open the struggle for power. I don't know, there's some attempts to divide like between a good Kautsky of before 1910 and a bad Kautsky after 1910, and I think there is a definite rightward shift in Kautsky's thinking, but also far before 1910, like uh, Lenin uh, did a lot of work on this, there's a very strong, uh, uh, what was it called, superstitious deference for the state in uh, Kautsky's thinking. Like, uh, like a, like a refusal to deal with the question of the, of the necessity of, of, of breaking with the, with the capitalist state. And so in a certain sense of this 1910 debate, Kautsky was vindicated because two years later, when the elections came, the SPD did become the largest party in the German parliament. They won over 4 million votes, uh, got 110 seats in parliament. But in a more important sense, uh, Kautsky's uh, proposed strategy was catastrophically wrong because of this huge bastion in parliament. As, Everyone notes here, didn't accomplish much besides unanimously voting in support of the imperialist war on August 4th, uh, 1914. And, and in a weird um, trick of the dialectic, you know, the strength of the SPD as the single party of the entire workers' movement in Germany, uniting all its different currents, actually turned into an enormous obstacle for the workers' movement because the SPD was able to effectively, at least for the beginning of the war, silence any voices of opposition. Yeah, so... Um, Thinking about Kotsky's ideas regarding uh, attrition and overthrow, yeah, until his death in exile in 1938, he never felt that the moment for switching to the strategy of overthrow arrived. He didn't feel that way in 1933 when the Nazis uh, arrived in power and destroyed the workers' movement. He didn't feel that in 1918 when an actual revolution took place. Even then, his uh, strategy was based on negotiating with the capitalists and their state, which, of which the Socialization Commission I mentioned at the beginning was an expression. I don't know, we can also ask, thinking about this, this idea of, of the two different strategies that a party can switch beyond, like, was the SPD actually prepared for a strategy of overthrow? Like, had there been material preparations? Had the party center made the necessary preparations to take a struggle underground in case it was prohibited because of revolutionary actions? There was also a material force uh, opposed to the SPD switching uh, to a strategy of overthrow, and that was the enormous and growing bureaucracy of the trade unions. In 1906, the SPD had even consented that it would not call a general strike without the consent of the bureaucratic leaders of the trade unions, you know, giving them a complete uh, veto power over the party's entire action. 
But I would say there's also a deeper problem with Kautsky's theory, and that is that I don't think it's possible to, to, to differentiate between like a binary of a revolutionary situation and a non-revolutionary situation, like a, like a meteorologist, you know, saying, is, is it raining or not? Uh, because, as Luxembourg argued at the time, like the, the character of a situation depends to a large degree on whether a mass workers' party like the SPD is pushing for a general strike or encouraging people not to... Uh, go on a general strike and instead waiting for the next elections. Like part of Trotsky's analysis of revolutionary situations is that they're based on the reciprocal effects of objective and subjective factors. They're not simply falling from the sky, they're not something that marks a stand on the sidelines of diagnosing. And, 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 and capitalism is in fact full of intermediary situations. I would say, well, when, when can you ever say a situation is purely revolutionary or purely uh, non-revolutionary? Okay, so I'd like to come uh, to the debate today now and like why after 80 years uh, Kautsky is returning from obscurity. And I'd uh, start with the experience of the Greek left party uh, Syriza, which won elections in 2015 on an anti-austerity platform and within one year uh, ignored the massive no vote of the Greek people and began itself to implement the most brutal austerity measures, you know, wage cuts and evictions, repression, um, and lots of people at this conference, I'm thinking of Jacobin particularly, uh, praising Sudis at the time, and I, I haven't seen much of a, of a balance sheet in terms of what actually went wrong. Balance sheets I have seen tend to focus on like the lack of personal courage by uh, Alexis Tsipras, you know, that, that the leadership of Sudisa kind of lost its nerve and maybe could have done something different. And I think um, I'm going to quote um, the head of a different left party, uh, the party Podemos in the Spanish state. Their leader, uh, Pablo Iglesias, had a better analysis of uh, Cyprus' record, I think. And he said, I'm quoting here in a translation, uh, he's, he's thinking about a hypothetical Podemos government in the Spanish state. And he says, if we took tough measures from the government, we would suddenly have a good part of the army, the police apparatus, all the media, and everything against us, absolutely everything. In a parliamentary system in which you need to ensure an absolute majority, it's very difficult. To begin with, you need to reach an agreement with the Socialist Party. Uh, that's the end of the quote. So I think Iglesias is more correctly pointing to these two real strategic alternatives. Like if a party wants to oppose austerity, either on the one hand they need to prepare in a political, organizational, material, and ideological sense for a, con for, for a confrontation with all the institutions of the bourgeoisie, or if they don't want this kind of confrontation, then they need to seek compromises with the parties of the bourgeoisie. And there's really no middle ground here. There's, there, there, there's no middle, middle, middle path that Teresa could have taken. Okay, thank you. I, I think I can do that. So uh, Podemos has so far avoided this kind of decision largely because they're not in a national government, but they are in government in cities like Madrid and Barcelona, and they're, they're also responsible for implementing austerity and racist laws. And since they have no intention of a confrontation with you know, absolutely everything, with all the institutions of bourgeois society, then if they do reach power at a national level, they, I, I don't see what options they have to act differently than Tsipras, regardless of, of whether Iglesias has more personal courage. And so, um, yeah, what does this mean for the US? Like, I think in the US context, where we've seen the explosive growth of the DSA, you know, it, it, my feel, like I said, I arrived in the United States two days ago, I'm uh, gonna learn more about this, but my impression from the outside is the DSA is focused a lot on, on, on what they call an inside-outside strategy towards the Democratic Party, and perhaps um, supported by the idea of a democratic break, uh, of a dirty break. Um, but in practice, what I've seen from the DSA is there's not a lot of outside components. Like all the electoral work they've done has been inside uh, the Democratic Party. And, and 
not, I mean, the work they've done, they've done seems to largely consist in endorsing candidates over whom they have no control, really. You know, give someone a mandate and then hope for the best. Um, right, and, and so this, this implies a strategy of supporting left-wing Democrats who refer to themselves as socialists, but I don't think that de facto strategy would be as attractive to radicalizing young people in the United States. You know, there's a 150-year history of the socialist movement in the United States consistently opposing both parties of capital. So if you were just to say, well, we're just going to support left-wing Democrats, uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't think that would, that would have the same attractiveness. So I think it's, it's what, what it ends up being, uh, what this inside-outside strategy ends up being is, is, is like, a, like a vision of, you know, one day in the distant future, when the right moment comes, uh, we're going to break with the Dems and have a revolution. And I think this is kind of where it comes back to Kautsky, is having one practice, you know, one real strategy of a political party, but then conjuring up a someday kind of strategy. This isn't a real strategy, you know, when the time comes, we're going we're gonna to switch. And in the case of the, of the majority of the DSA, that, that switch is going to be to breaking from the Dems. But as Kautsky's legacy shows, I don't think that moment ever comes. Like, there's never, I, I haven't seen in practice a, a, a method for switching from the strategy of attrition to the strategy of overthrow. And so, so the whole idea of an overthrow becomes kind of a semi-religious incantation, you know, a week full of reformist practice, and then every Sunday you, you have a speech about it. I'm going to skip some stuff just to stay in time. So I think that Luxembourg, in the 1910 debate with Kautsky, shared a fundamental strategic concept with Lenin, which was the idea of a revolutionary party that would push the class struggle forward and unite the most conscious elements of the working class in order to give leadership to the entire class. But I think Lenin had, a, had an innovation uh, that was important, which was, a, which was an understanding of the material forces that were at work, that the, that the opportunist and revisionist tendencies uh, within the social democracy was based on these massive bureaucracies within uh, the trade unions and the workers' parties, and so that a revolutionary tendency, what Lenin, I think, understood better than Luxembourg, needed its own material base, which was independent revolutionary factions in the mass organizations. So, yeah, I'd like to close just with um, the most recent contributions to the debate about uh, Kautsky. You can see on Jacobin and on John Riddle's blog and a lot of interesting stuff. And just uh, this morning, actually, I heard uh, Eric Plank again arguing that you know only a tiny minority of workers have ever have ever even nominally supported the idea of an insurrection. And I think Eric Blake is a great historian. I've read some really interesting stuff by him, so I'm convinced that he knows all the counterexamples. He knows probably more counterexamples than I do. But just to mention a few of them, like uh, where I've been based for the last 20 years in Berlin, the last elections that took place before the ascent of the Nazis and the end of 1932, the Communist Party won 38% of the votes and became, became the largest party. Over a million Berlin workers uh, voted communist. And that's the case from 1918 to 1933 in Germany that you had a mass movement that... And again, that's just one example that occurs to me really quickly. Um, another um, argument that, that I heard from, from Eric Blank was that, uh, that, that, outside, that in uh, capitalist countries with parliamentary systems that you've never seen the development of workers' councils or other like Soviet-type bodies. And again, I don't think that's accurate. Like uh, one, one counterexample that occurred to me was in Chile in the 1970s under the Allende government. You had very classical Soviet-style uh, bodies emerging, the Cordones Industriales, which delegates from factories were linking up and presenting a, a, a material base for an alternative policy to that of the Allende government. I think even right now, if we look at France, the Yellow Vest movement, I think even in a very you know traditional, established parliamentary democracy, you, all the time you can see movements that focus on self-organization and resist uh, the pressure to be parliamentarized. Um, 
Uh, yeah, finally... Uh, Good time. What? Yeah, there's lots of time. Okay, thanks. Yeah, a few more paragraphs. Thanks for understanding. I'll cut up some stuff too. But I, I just, uh, finally, in the, in the debate, uh, Eric Plank makes a lot of references to the Finnish Revolution of 1917 and 1918. In Finland, there was a party led by, by students of, of Kautsky, the, the SDP, who did win an absolute majority in parliament and then proceeded to seize political power. And um, yeah, that's a really interesting revolution and deserves a lot more study. It, it's true that the Social Democratic Party was able to win a majority in parliament, but I think that was an exceptional situation in a bourgeois society in which the Finnish bourgeoisie was absolutely unaccustomed to rule. I think it's, I think it's rather naive to think that a party which, which, which intends to use a parliamentary mandate to, to seize political power and smash the state, that a more experienced bourgeoisie than the Finnish one is going to allow them to get a, a parliamentary majority. The Red Army was also in Poland, right. in Finland. Yeah. And I thought what was really interesting was that the Finnish Kautskis, you could say, really couldn't comprehend, if you look at the way they acted during the revolution, they couldn't comprehend the capitalist refusal to accept the election results. Like they were so schooled in this idea of democracy, the idea that the bourgeoisie would then begin economic sabotage, close all the banks and everything. They were, they were just so shocked that they, that they basically couldn't react at all. It was only when the Finnish bourgeoisie itself opened a civil war that the, the, the Kautskis then saw themselves forced uh, to, to take power for themselves. But since they had spent decades preparing for a peaceful parliamentary transition to socialism, they were really terrible at taking power. They just did an absolutely awful uh, job of it. And, and I mean, they couldn't effectively wage a war against the bourgeoisie if they were convinced, if their theory told them that the result of this war would have to be some kind of compromise. You know, if, if the bourgeoisie is going to be in power uh, at the end of whatever struggle you have, well, you're not gonna, you're not gonna fight to win. Uh, so, uh, and to close, I just want to uh, defend Kautsky a little bit after attacking him for the last 15 minutes because Kautsky was talking about an independent socialist workers movement fighting for a parliamentary majority. Whereas, as far as I can tell, in the United States, the neo-Kautskyists are all supporting the Democratic Party, um, candidates of the Democratic Party. And this is one of the two parties of U.S. imperialism. Just recently, in the crisis of Venezuela, we saw even how the so-called socialist left of the Democratic Party has supported uh, the offensive of U.S. imperialism. So this is not, this is sub-Kautskyan. This is, this is far below uh, what Kautsky's minimum. I think that Kautsky's legacy teaches us, um, let's see, uh, Kautsky talked about uh, the, the socialist party being a revolutionary party, but not a revolution-making party that we know that our goal can only be attained through revolution, but we also know that it is not in our power to create this revolution. It is no part of our work to instigate a revolution to, or to prepare for it. And yeah, I would say he's definitely half wrong there. The Workers' Party cannot instigate a revolution, cannot you know, plan it out on a drawing board and carry it out according to a plan, but a revolutionary party certainly needs to prepare uh, for revolution. So, thanks. <laughs>